and kind of, and always perfecting the pitch, always perfecting the story, using the past experience, past fundraising meetings saying, hey, listen, what did we do well? What did we do poorly? And myself and my co-founder both being student athletes, and, and that's one of the reasons I, I love him and, and have a tremendous respect. Very happy that he took a meeting with me in a diner into an entire company. But it really is just making sure that you can learn from every experience, positive and negative. And so that's what we've done tremendously well. It's been successful for us to the point where now we're kind of living it out. We're growing this company. We just hired our first employee um, who's heading our engineering efforts. And so always taking things with a grain of salt, but learning from it, I would say. This is your daily real estate syndication show. I'm your host, Sam Rust. Joining us today is Alex Blackwood, a visionary extraordinaire. Alex graduated from Georgetown University and has in-depth firsthand experience working with blockchain banks, mortgage companies, fintech platforms, and real estate investors through his time in investment banking and real estate private equity at Goldman Sachs. Alex, welcome to the show today. Thanks for joining us. Well, thanks so much for having me here, Sam. Yeah. Uh, so we're talking a little bit about the marriage of blockchain and real estate. Um, you know, this is a, a burgeoning field. Blockchain is definitely something that has hit our cultural zeitgeist over the last year or so, um, connected to the, the crypto world. Um, but the big challenge for crypto as a whole and, and the transition to Web.3, just throwing some buzzwords that people may hear, is, is I think taking it out of strictly the realm of the technologist and really trying to bring that technology into the quote real world in a way where it'll actually impact everyday folks um, because there's a lot of promise, but so far that gap has proven to be somewhat difficult to bridge, um, especially as uh, in the United States, we're looking to clarify regulatory environments, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so Alex, you founded Mogul, a company that's focused on marrying blockchain and real estate and giving folks the opportunity to invest you know, as little as $100 and get shares in a, a property. Why is now, as we're recording this in August of 2023, why is now the right moment for this marriage of blockchain and real estate? Yeah, I mean, to be honest, you hit on a, a lot of the great key buzzwords, especially that kind of web 3.0, if you will. I mean, when we think about it and kind of how the technology has been applied, especially in the crypto space, we're thinking about it from blockchain first perspective. I mean, for us, crypto is a massively speculative asset that people are looking to get involved with, with the idea that hopefully one day it ticks up. And it's kind of this greater fool's fallacy that the last one in hopefully can sell out before the next person. And so with us, the way that we're looking to apply blockchain is really up and down the supply chain of real estate. When you think about it from a capital markets, operational and transactional perspective, you can really start to apply blockchain throughout those different avenues, operating what's called or solving for what is called that kind of Oracle problem of blockchain. And so I'm not sure, are you familiar at all with that kind of Oracle problem that a lot of people are looking to solve? Yeah, it might be helpful for our audience to sketch it out. I've done some background work into like Chainlink and some of those Oracle networks, um, but that's a big key is establishing truth on a blockchain, right? Because if you're going to have code control outcomes, control actions in the real world, then the information that the code is using to make those decisions has to be verifiable um, and true. Uh, and that that's, a, that's, that's fundamentally the Oracle problem as I understand it. Yep, it, it's exactly that. So really the 
prime example that a lot of people tend to use is this crop insurance example. It's the idea that premiums are actually paid out to people that take out crop insurance when certain weather anomalies happen. So for instance, a farmer might take it out and if temperatures drop below freezing, so below, below 32 degrees Fahrenheit, then technically they get paid out through the crop insurance companies. Now, that's a great use of a smart contract whereby if then statements occur, so if it drops below 32 degrees Fahrenheit, then they get paid out. However, blockchain kind of operates separate in this network outside of, uh, in a network of itself, right? It's this decentralized network that kind of all are different nodes communicating with one another. So how do you bring data from your traditional internet onto chain or on chain? And that's kind of where the Oracle problem and Oracle solution lies. It's really bringing that temperature in this example on chain so that the smart contract gets triggered to allow payouts to the farmer that takes out crop insurance. And so for this instance, a lot of people are looking to solve it in the chain link that you had mentioned through partnering with very trusted sources like the weather channels of the world that basically constantly stream and upload content on chain. So that way that weathers are, or that way temperatures are constantly monitored. So and, that makes sense from like a crop insurance. I, I agree. That's a, a pretty specific and, and pretty easily understandable, uh, you know, example of what we're dealing with here. But what does that mean in real estate? What, what types of problems are we trying to solve in real estate that you need oracles for? Yeah, I mean, pretty much the entire asset class itself, right? <laughs> the uh, real estate being a real world asset, you really have to communicate from real world on chain. And so thinking about it from a transactional perspective, when we think about title insurance, we think about we basically pay an upfront premium to protect us against worst case scenario that you have this kind of muddy or clouded title. And so the way that you can solve this at an Oracle solution problem is really by operating and bringing that title on chain. Now, how do you do that? You have to partner with governments in the space. You have to partner with local county clerk's offices. You have to partner with title insurance providers in order to bring it all on chain. So if you think about it from a county clerk office, where is title being held right now? But kind of in these servers that if for whatever reason something happened to those servers, all title would go out the door. And so if you were to partner with these county clerk's offices to bring the title on chain and it's registered and all the data is held on chain on this decentralized network, then thereby there would be no more muddied or cloudy title. And so the Oracle solution is really bringing all that data, whether it be title insurance or whether it be the actual property logistics, whether it be the uh, actual supplies made to use the house. If you can bring all of that data on chain in this immutable ledger, interacting with the smart contracts, you basically remove any inefficiencies and archaic processes that you have in the entire real estate sector. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Um, I, I think that title, clean title, tracking title is one of the easiest uh, use cases for crypto. The challenge, as you, you sort of highlighted there, is you're dealing with government entities. Government entities are not known for being at the cutting edge of technology, far from it. Um, you know, is that the problem that Mogul is trying to solve, is bringing 
title from county, individual counties or even states on chain, um, you know, how, how can we achieve that mass, that, that beginning mass to be able to, to see adoption on, on somewhat of a wider scale? It, it feels like we're kind of at a chicken and egg stage where, you know, we need all this data on chain to be able to deliver the efficiencies that we all believe are there that can be realized, but you can't really realize those until all the data is there and, and there's this push pull of, you know, there's not a lot of benefit until you have that critical mass. Yeah. I mean, when, when we at Mogul are thinking about it, right, it's kind of, it's as exactly as you highlighted this chicken or the egg problem. But when you have a lot of these industries that are kind of on the cutting edge, needing government buy-in, a lot of times the governments don't buy in until it's ultimately too late. And so, for instance, in the case of Uber and ride sharing, the taxi cab industry kind of attacked Uber and ride sharing until at some point Uber was so big that the government had no choice but to actually work with them to come to an ultimate solution. Right now, you're seeing it with the Coinbases of the world. Coinbase mentioned staking, I believe it was over 50 times in their S1 that the SEC actually approved, stamped its mark of approval before it was able to go public. Yet now they're coming after them saying you have to delist every asset except Bitcoin. And so with real estate, with how we're approaching it, it's really by solving a back office inefficiency perspective first, because that's all we can truly do right now. And then as you scale up, it's then partnering with the governments as you have kind of this mass, as you have a, a reputable source and a history behind you to be able to say, listen, we've done this for so long. We know every pain point that happens up and down the supply chain of real estate. If you work with us, We'll work together to make sure that we reduce your back office costs, we provide complete transparency, and we're never in a position of muddy title, of cloudy uh, cloudy operations, lack of transparency. And so that's kind of what we're looking to do right now is solving that back office inefficiency, offering these fractional ownership in these entities that once the property is on chain, we can scale up rapidly through the use of users on one end of the supply side and or on the demand side and then property owners on the other end of the supply. Yeah. And and so that then leads to another critical mass problem, right? Like you need to generate investor demand. You need the 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 folks who are wanting to invest, you know, 100, 1000, 10000 dollars into real estate in a fractional way. You also need owners that are willing to put their properties on chain. Um, or buy the properties yourself and fractionalize them yourself. I would assume that you're taking the, the first path of partnering with owners to bring their properties onto the platform in whole or in part. Um, but but which side of that equation are you focusing more effort on? I assume you have to put a lot of effort into both, but which side of that ledger are you putting more effort into right now? Yeah, I mean, that's just a, that's a common platform problem, right? It's kind of, you have to think about in terms of value drivers that increase value for the users on platform for them to ultimately have a positive feedback loop. And so the value drivers in this case are exactly, as you said, is the supply side of things. When you bring high quality product to market, you can increase the value of your platform incrementally. However, it's that user buy-in that allows us to add more high quality product. So again, a kind of circularity there. And so right now we've actually partnered with property owners and investment brokerages on the supply side of the equation because we know 
as we ramp up and as we scale up, we're going to need to have this kind of endless inventory of very high quality product so that our work doesn't falter and our users buy in and then can spread the word of Mogul to everyone saying, listen, this is something that I just got involved with. These are the returns I'm experiencing. This is kind of the educational component to it and how Mogul is looking to achieve that massive transparency to the end user and kind of walk them through the entire real estate investing transaction. And once that happens is when more supply comes online, floods the market, but then it's met with the equal demand that then circles back. And then we can start adding more products to incrementally add value to the end users that will incrementally add more supply. And it's kind of just this never ending loop that we have to solve for. And it, we really are a platform business offering that ownership and partnering with on the supply side. So now that we have the supply side is really as, as we're looking to grow is the demand side of the equation. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned as I was digging into your website a little bit, I found one spot where you said you evaluate a thousand properties for every one that you bring on. What does your evaluation process look like before you get a, a property onboarded um, to the point where somebody could invest into it? Yeah. I mean, so when we look at individual properties, I mean, it is a number of different tar markets that we are targeting. So we're looking at the Sunbelt regions. Uh, we're looking at this high price to rent dislocation. And so in those regards, we've actually partnered with investment brokerages in these sub-markets that we're targeting. With them, we say, listen, these are the types of rents that we're looking for. These are the types of yields that we're looking for. These are the types of prices that we're looking for. And then we go back to our lending partner and ask, what are the interest rates that we could get? This is what it means to have a creative lead fridge on a property. Then we go out to our property managers or our investment property owners. With that, we partner with them. We say, listen, this is kind of our buy box. If you bring us property, we'll go to you as the investor broker on the transaction. With that, they come back to us, say, with a thousand plus properties. We kind of whittle it down to the top kind of 100 area. And then we do greater diligence around each of them, calling each of the property owners, getting kind of the qualitative as aspect of everything, making sure that it's zoned and it's in the right, I guess, are there any limiting factors that would eliminate properties right out the bat? From there, it cuts down to about 20 properties. And in those 20 properties is really, we dig in even deeper, doing a complete financial underwriting of the property itself until finally we have that kind of top five we're able to get the best price for the asset that we can kind of under market so that we can recognize immediate property appreciation as well as greater rental yields to our end users, call it kind of targeting that 12 to 15% minimum hurdle rate before we even move forward with the property. Then we look to submit an offer on it through a PropCo LLC being the buyer. And as that happens, we're closing out the leverage on the property. We're making sure that everything is good to go from a user perspective. So that way, when it's completely onboarded and offered out to our user, it's an operating asset that they'll immediately start seeing returns from. Once the property then is offered out and the users buy into it, they'll receive rent on a monthly basis directly to their dashboard, property appreciation tracked in real time through the use of third-party APIs that basically uh, pipe in appraisal level property metrics. And then also end of year tax returns 
K1 just pops up immediately in their dashboard so they can slap it on the back of their tax returns. And so that's kind of how it works. And so, yes, we we basically partner with these property owners to get property owners and investment brokerages to get that thousand property list. And then we continuously cut down, always looking at it from a conservative based scenario first. And anything above that in our minds is just upside. Yeah. So to clarify, are, is Mogul buying the properties um, and, and you guys are full service in that side or are you just connecting existing owners to your platform or both? So it's a little bit of both, right? Because in order to operate and bring that property on chain, you have to do it through a legal entity and it's a PropCo LLC. So yeah. PropCo LLC is signing on as the buyer of the property. And then we're basically offering ownership in that PropCo LLC that is an investment club for all intents and purposes. Yeah. What kinds of properties are you onboarding to date? Uh, single family rentals, short-term rentals, multifamily properties. What's your target buy box right now, just from an asset class perspective? Yeah. So we are targeting SFR. I mean, if, if you're willing to invest in anything, it's really going to be one of the necessities of life. I mean, shelter being one of them. So for us, it's just such a massive asset class. You're seeing this kind of seismic shift in user demand or in homeowner demand into kind of those what traditionally had been thought of as secondary markets that are now being flooded with demand that doesn't have the supply to match. So for us, the SFR landscape and the outlook is incredible. And so we're targeting SFR, looking at it from a long term, as well as a higher yielding asset class, too. Yeah, well, that's interesting. Um You've done a lot of different things since graduating Georgetown. Um, you were a rower in college, which uh, when I think of sports, there's kind of the, uh, um, there's a ratio of fun and hard work. And and in my mind, at least I classify rowing as like really high on the hard work and kind of low on the fun. Um, how does one get into rowing? What did you enjoy about that? What do you enjoy about that? And how has that helped you um, in your career to this point? Yeah, I mean, I, I completely agree with it. It's a medieval form of torture. That's why I don't touch the thing anymore. But <laughs> but I will say, I, to be completely honest with you, I kind of stumbled into it. I thought I was going to be a baseball player all my life. I was kind of, uh, rowing is filled with, and forgive me for any of the rowers out there that don't feel this way is filled with really athletic looking unathletic people. And by that, I mean, we know what to do in a boat. We know how to push ourselves to the upteenth degree. We know that mental discipline. But if you threw us a basketball, we wouldn't know how to do anything with it, right? And I mean, there are obviously exceptions to the rule. And, and I don't mean that as a diss by any means. But I just saw it as something that you get out what you put in. And it's a very efficient sport. It is kind of crazy, the trade-off where you're basically doing thousands of hours of prep work in order to compete for 36 minutes in a season. So it is a ridiculous sport. Got into it, actually, because I uh, was introduced to in my high school, tried it out, thought it was great, realized I was kind of solid at it to the point where maybe, hey, I can get recruited out of it. And so with that, I love the camaraderie about it. I love the team sport aspect of it. Really, everyone's working together to get towards a common goal at the end at the end line. How it's helped me to date, I mean, it, it really helped me coming out of the gate because 
in investment banking, it's just kind of taking repeated punches to the face. And rowing preps you to the nth degree with that. Because at the end of the day, if you're there at 5 a.m., everyone's like, oh, this is miserable. But I don't have practice, which I usually would have had. So I was I was more than willing to pull those all-nighters in compared to what I had previously gone through. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. Yeah, that's a, a, an interesting sport. I've enjoyed watching it. You know, basically, my exposure has been relegated to the Olympics every four years. Um, growing up on the West Coast, it's not as common as it is in the East Coast. Not that it's that common there either, but uh, definitely takes a lot of mental fortitude to be able to push through, push your body beyond what you think it's capable of. And and as you said, it's a pretty short race. You spend a lot of time prepping for a very small window of time. Yeah, I mean, that's actually a better exposure, I would say, that you've had than most people. Everyone that talks to me about it says, oh, have you seen the social network? And it's that 30-second clip of them racing at Henley. And it's absolutely <laughs> ridiculous. I mean, it definitely isn't. It's a mental sport, too. But it's so funny to see everyone glorified around that 30 seconds of the Winklevoss twins going at it in England. <laughs> yeah, oh, that's fantastic. Um you know, you've been pretty open in some other interviews um, and articles that have been written about Mogul um, or profiles on yourself about the fundraising experience um, for Mogul. Um, I'm curious, you know, a lot of our audience is raising capital, whether it's for real estate deals, or I even know some folks raise for venture deals. Um, what what was a key lesson or takeaway from you as you were raising that pre-seed round um, for Mogul? Yeah, <laughs> to boil it down, it is, uh, I mean, it was definitely quite difficult. The common conception out there, because you always see in these articles, X company raised X seed round or X company raised series A. And you always hear the glory stories of someone walking into a meeting and getting slapped immediately a term sheet. I'll just tell you this, in our first fundraising experience. We accidentally went to a venture debt fund. We found that out in the interview that only lent on revenue. We were a pre-seed company that was in idea stage. We had been basically thinking, oh, we've got to present this air of bravado about us. So we rented out a co-working space meeting area that had basically a Zoom camera with a whole boardroom facing us and we're sitting at the end of the table, basically pitching to them. Turns out they weren't even on video. They were calling into the meeting, which was a great experience in and of itself. So, I mean, at, at the end of the day, and by the way, they they obviously did not invest in us, if, if that was not clear by the entry. But we learned that really all that stuff is for the movies and everything that you hear about these glory stories about term sheets being slapped down are really only for companies that truly were unicorn status and, and had this ridiculous experience. And so it doesn't mean that the idea isn't good. It just means that you've got to come at it from a perspective of you're going to get a lot more no's than yeses. It takes one yes. People forget that all the time that it takes one yes. Literally, we had originally thought that, all right, we're just going to go and kind of, uh, we're going to go and bootstrap this thing. And then we got one yes from Tim Draper that set us off on a different path entirely and we're able to do it full time. And so it really is just kind of working the numbers game and kind of, and always perfecting the pitch, always perfecting the story, 
using the past experience, past fundraising meetings saying, hey, listen, what did we do well? What did we do poorly? And myself and my co-founder both being student athletes, and, and that's one of the reasons I, I love him and, and have a tremendous respect. Very happy that he took a meeting with me in a diner into an entire company. But it really is just making sure that you can learn from every experience, positive and negative. And so that's what we've done tremendously well. It's been successful for us to the point where now we're kind of living it out. We're growing this company. We just hired our first employee um, who's heading our engineering efforts. And so always taking things with a grain of salt, but learning from it, I would say. Yeah, oh, that's fantastic. Um, as we get ready to close up here, Alex, what's a, what's a habit, a daily, weekly habit that has helped you get to where you are today that you could share with our audience? Daily or weekly habit? Huh. That is, I mean, to be honest with you, it really is. I find that you do have to use kind of a personal time approach to things. I, I think that a lot of founders and a lot of people out there think that the the grind set mentality, right, is 24-7. You never stop grinding. You never should do anything for yourself. It should all be in on the company. I would say working out getting physically active has been an absolute massive, I guess, mental health space, I would say, as well as physical health space. Myself, my co-founder, we play tennis all the time with one another. We play basketball with one another. I'm not nearly as good as him, obviously, but at the because he was a tennis player in college. But at the same time, using that to really decompress, let your mind work, engaging that kind of 99% of passive brain power in everyday work is kind of the biggest key in in my mind to any longevity around any career. Yeah, I would totally agree. Physical fitness, you only get one body, you should train it well. Um, and it'll enable so many other things beyond just the, uh, the satisfaction of, of seeing improvement and uh, maintaining fitness. So, well, Alex, really appreciate you coming on the show today. I think it's been helpful for our audience, fun to learn about what's happening um, in the technology space vis-a-vis uh, -vis real estate. If folks want to learn more about what you're doing at Mogul, how can they get in touch? Where can they go to read more information? So I would go to www.mogul.com, not .com, .oo, I would say. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, thank you, Alex. Thank you to our audience for joining us. This has been another episode of the Real Estate Syndication Show. I'm your host, Sam Rust, signing off.